There's protection and provision and support. There is education, formation. There's encouragement, empowerment, and nurture. Being a parent is filled with some of the most critical responsibilities imaginable. But I'm not sure that there's anything that I have done in my role as a father over these now 13 plus years that is more daunting, more fraught than when it's time to scoop the ice cream. There's just no getting this right. Maybe I don't have enough practice since this is more of a special occasion in our house. Or maybe that's why the moment is so charged for our children because ice cream is something of a scarce resource in our home. But first, there's the whole process of selecting the flavor. And by no means are we buying four cartons of ice cream for every child's preference. That's just not how it works. And then there's making sure that we have four clean and precisely matching bowls available. And then, of course, comes the most treacherous moment when you have to attempt to scoop equally, meeting it out amidst craning necks and straining eyes. I've thought about getting a small kitchen scale at times for these moments because you know what's going to happen. The weighing, the estimating, the comparison. Now some of our kids have matured beyond this now for the most part, but there is still going to be that inevitable statement, he has more, or she took the last scoop of cookie dough, that was mine, or the repeated refrain, that's not fair. That's not fair. One time when it was said, I just replied abruptly, you know what, this isn't fair. This is family. (laughs) Well, in this morning's parable, Jesus provokes reactions that are so base, so primitive that they have been with us since childhood. Those questions of who gets what and how and when at an early age before speech is fully developed still many of us learn to structure our first complete sentence that's not fair when we're faced with a cookie that didn't crumble our way or a treat or a toy that's distributed unequally this is the cry that i heard in an episode of a comedy show a few years back following the life of a single father of two young daughters that's not fair one daughter says incessantly upset that her sister has received the last of the house hold popsicle supply and the father is standing in the kitchen and attempting to explain such abstract comment concepts as fairness and luck to his young daughter and finally he comes down to eye level and he says listen to me the only reason that you ever look in your neighbor's bowl is to make sure that they have enough you don't look in their bowl to see if you should have more you look to make sure that they have enough well if only we could learn this as children but then some years back I was a youth minister in Nashville and I was in a fall retreat with our teenagers when the topic of fairness came up as we were discussing this parable of Jesus and we reached verse 14 as the landowner says I choose to give to this last one the same as I give to you this overwhelming generosity that pays everyone the same across the board no matter the hours worked and I asked for a reaction and after a pause one teenager said straightforwardly and so honestly man that stinks that frustration at this confounding mercy seems to follow us through our days a preacher friend tells of a church member greeting her after a sermon on this text You know, 
there are parts of the Bible that are difficult to abide, and there are other parts that aren't so much. And the story you preached on today is one that I find totally offensive, and I think you should have chosen a parable less offensive than that one. But then again, what parable would that be? The parable of the prodigal son? His generous Father offering to the wayward one all of the grace and abundance of the home? Or would it be the parable of the great banquet when the invitations go out to each and every person, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, invite them all in? Would it be the parable of the unmerciful servant where we learn of this endless forgiveness 70 times 7? No matter where we turn, It seems Jesus is constantly offending us with this kingdom that He envisions and tries to inspire in us where the wages don't correlate to the work. Where the last are the first and the first are the last. And where we are called to organize ourselves not on fairness or even on that biblical concept of justice alone, but instead on generosity and on grace. And many of us would just assume walk out on that vision of the world. Let somebody else work for such a place on earth as it is in heaven. Because most of us imagine ourselves as hard-working, early-morning laborers in this parable, bearing the burden and the heat of the day. For those who come in early and we work a full day, earning and deserving all that we receive. It's clear even in how we have titled this parable to privilege the experience of the 6 a.m. workers. The subheadings in your Bibles, in your Sunday school lessons, what do they say? They speak of the parable of the unfair wages in some cases. They speak of the parable of the grumbling workers. They speak of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. And in this story, the landowner goes out early to find them all ready to work. They've carefully meted out equally all of the early morning smoothies or cereal for their kids, all in equal measure, and now they are ready to put in a full, honest day. So the landowner promises one denarius, which was the basic subsistence for a person to feed their family for a day. The landowner then went back 9 o'clock, noon, 3 o'clock, 5, and hired more workers. And he told them simply that he'd pay them, quote, what was right. What was right, he said. And in the vineyard of this owner, it turns out that what is right is for all of those hired from 6 a.m. to quitting time to receive the same wage. For the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This is one of three times that Jesus repeats this phrase in Matthew 19 and 20. First, there is the rich young man in chapter 19 who walks away heartbroken as Jesus calls him to sell his possessions and to give all to the poor. And as he slips over the horizon of the Gospel story, we hear Jesus say, Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Which must have been reassuring and somewhat validating for the disciples who had shed all of their possessions so freely to follow, to be light and agile enough to fit through that needle's eye. But then, even they have that visceral yearning to know where they rank in this new kingdom, where they stand. And so it's later in Matthew that James, John, and even their mother are petitioning Jesus to sit at his right and his left in his kingdom. And Jesus replies to their pleas, well, whoever wants to be first must first be servant. And it's right in between these two stories that we find our text this morning. 
And it's just as frustrating for us as it is for that rich young man or as it is for those disciples throwing elbows to get the prime place in the kingdom. And the landowner can see it in all of the laborers and he asks a question which is at the very heart of the gospel. Maybe it haunted you as it was read earlier. Are you envious? Because I am generous. Are we? Well, if we are, we are not alone. This is frustrating for those of us accustomed to working a full day. This is one of those moments that the farmer and preacher Clarence Jordan spoke of in his folk wisdom when he said that, quote, whenever Jesus told a parable, he lit a stick of dynamite and covered it up with a story. Because it then explodes all of our notions of how the world operates. It blows up our rules of what is fair and ordered. Because throughout the Gospels, Jesus is asking us to do this, to reimagine, to reconstruct a world as it could be, as it ought to be. And in Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. And he is so absolutely clear about this that it is not otherworldly or ethereal or high and lofty. It's not distant or beyond us. It is near to you, he says. In describing this kingdom, Jesus never asks us to leave our world. And so his parables are so utterly earthly and relatable. They are as close to us as the roads we walk every day, as the work we do day in and day out. They're as close as the economic systems that we can recognize, as close as the seeds we plant, the bread baking to feed our families through these common settings, through these ordinary elements, Jesus describes the kingdom as if to say, you don't have to go somewhere else. Right here. Right now. As He announces at the beginning of His ministry, the kingdom is near. It's as near as a day's wages. It's as near as a job in which you've toiled in the heat of the day. It's as near as a system of pay and fairness that is then completely disrupted by this generous landowner. And it is also as near as our reactions. It is as near as our invitation to respond to this grace. And our response might be different depending on where we situate ourselves in that line. And it might be different if we've known what it is to be at the end of it. This is a story told explicitly about some of the poorest of the poor. Day laborers, hard, hand-to-mouth existence. People making just enough to feed their families. People literally praying, give us this day our daily bread. And we recognize some of these five o'clock workers because their lives are not so different today. It was over a decade ago, that my wife Jenny and I traveled with a group of youth from our church in Nashville to Homestead, Florida, where we worked with an organization called Touching Miami with Love. This is an effort of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship in Florida that grew out of the response to the devastation of Hurricane Andrew, and it became this source of support for people in that community. Many of them undocumented immigrants, and most of them day laborers in that poor agricultural community. And so they built a community center right there in the middle of five supportive housing communities where they hold enrichment programs, after school tutoring, and the camp in the summers that we staffed for the week. 
Well, on our last morning, we decided to take the long way round on the way to the community center. We wanted to know more about the area, and we were accompanied by the CBF field personnel who worked there in Homestead with the hope of helping us to see just how the community was organized, trying to gauge the reactions of the youth, and trying to observe and notice things that we might miss in the busy hurry of our day-to-day. And so we drove the perimeter of the neighborhood. And then out from the center, we continued. And as we drove, with every passing block, the scene seemed to change because the housing projects gave way to small homes densely populated, some still with evidence of storm damage. And then there were larger homes and yards until finally we reached sprawling farms and ornate accompanying homes The landscape changing with each block, it seemed. And right at the dividing line is a convenience store. And as we drove by, I guess it was about 9 a.m., it was filled with people waiting, people hoping someone would come by to hire them. Well, it was well past the time of hiring. And I'm sure if you had asked, why are you standing here? They could have responded, because no one has hired us. Well, we stopped at the four-way stop, and as I scanned the fence line, I saw immediately that I recognized one of the fathers who had come to pick up his son all throughout the week from summer camp, and he was leaning there, work gloves in his hand. And I looked away, and I pulled away just as quickly as I could. I was very embarrassed but there was really nowhere to hide in a church van full of suburban Nashville teenagers. And I knew he saw me. But I looked away. Maybe it was some embarrassment at my voyeurism. As though I had treated his life like some sort of museum exhibit. But I think it was more. As I think about that, I didn't want to lock eyes because if I did, that father clutching his work gloves, well, he would explode some of my assumptions of how the world works. He would reveal to me all of the cracks that exist in that mythology that tells me that if I work hard, well, opportunity will always abound. That everyone gets what they deserve. That the things I have, I have only because I've earned them. So I'd rather drive away from that and return to the world where I can play lightheartedly with His children. Or where I can carefully weigh and mete out some form of appropriate charity and not have to reimagine a world where He and I are given the same wage that day. But notice the landowner doesn't let the workers look away. Notice the landowner insists on paying the workers in reverse order to make sure that the first workers see what the last received. To make sure that there can be no hiding what was given to those that they might deem less deserving. The landowner wants them to see this because maybe as they do, they can start to see themselves a little differently. Latin American theologian Houston Gonzalez has asked, what if we could all see ourselves not as dutiful and employed, but as the five o'clock worker, the last one to arrive? And what if we heard the voice of Jesus say to us, 
I know that no one picked you up until the 11th hour, but I also know that your children are no less hungry tonight than the others. Here is your wage for a full day's work. It's not fair. But friends, is fairness really what we want from God? What if fairness was all that we received? If we want a world that operates according to fairness, yes, we're going to have to look for a different parable. Or we're going to really have to look for a different Lord. Because in the kingdom of mercy and generosity, the landowner says, I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I give to you. And the landowner wants them to see it. Just as Jesus wants all of us to see it. This is the kind of vineyard that this landowner ran. And this is the kind of kingdom that God in Christ imagines and invites us to live into. And not merely as workers, but as those who can in our lives come to model the landowner and do all we can in frivolous, abundant extravagant, nonsensical ways to make sure that others have enough. Imagining a different sort of vineyard that is structured on generosity rather than fairness. Where those who stand idle and ignored and leaning against the fence are of great value to God and to God's people that they might live with dignity each day. And where we understand the mercy so freely bestowed to us beyond the wages that we have earned with our lives. And where we might even come to imagine and understand this parable by new titles. Titles like the parable of a worker's child who went to bed full that night. Or the parable of the laborer who was acknowledged for the dignity given to them by God. Or the parable of the bottom line not mattering. Or the parable of the merciful landowner. Or the parable of the vineyard as it can yet be. There's a play by Timothy Thompson that is based on this parable. And in it, he depicts two people who are vying for work. But in this version, they are brothers. They are brothers who had tussled through life over ice cream and popsicles and all manner of struggles over just what is fair. John is strong and capable. And Philip is just as willing. But years before, Philip lost a hand in an accident. And so when the landowner comes, John is taken in that first wave of workers. And as he labors in the field, he works hard, but he looks up throughout the day. He's hoping to see some sign of Philip. Well, other workers are brought to the field, but Philip is not among them. John is grateful to have the work, but he feels empty knowing that Philip needs it too. And then finally, after several waves of workers have come, the last group of workers arrive and Philip is among them. And John's heart leaps. He's relieved to know that Philip will get to work at least one hour. But as the drama unfolds, those who came last get paid a full day's wages. And that's the moment when John knows that Philip will have the money that is needed for his family that day. And so as the landowner continues to work down the line, 
Well, all of those about are just grumbling about those at the other end of the line, but John's reaction is different because you see, that's his brother down there. The landowner approaches and John throws out his hand and he says with tears in his eyes, thank you, thank you. Thank you for what you've done for my brother today. There is a rabbinical teaching that finds a rabbi asking his students, how will you know that the night is over and a new day has come? Well, someone raises their hand, Rabbi, is it when there's enough light that you can tell the difference at a distance between a sheep and a goat? No, that's not it. Well, is it, Rabbi, when there's enough light that you can tell the difference at a distance between an oak tree and a fig tree? No, that's not it either, he says. Well, then when, Rabbi? Tell us, how will we know when the night is over, when the new day has arrived? And the rabbi says, when there's enough light in you, that when you see the face of another, even at a distance, you see the face of your brother, you see the face of your sister, you see the face of your sibling, that's when you will know that the night is over and that a new day has dawned. It's when we remember that this landowner believes in mercy more than fairness. It's when we understand that none of us truly have the wages that we have earned. It's when we remember that God behaves as though the best things in this world are meant for all people. And it's when we imagine that the person still leaning against the fence and holding their gloves at 9 o'clock or noon or 3 or 5 is just as loved and valued by God, just as needful of dignity and abundant life. When we can see another and see our family, well then, as the rabbi said, then the night is over and the light has come. Or, as another rabbi was often heard to say, then the kingdom of heaven, it is near. And may it be so. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.